everyone, it's Maya Geis with part four of Sugar Ball, Behind the Book, a companion podcast series where I talk to Arlie Proctor about his new book, Sugar Ball, a novel of Negro League baseball. Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, three American heroes, members of the athletic elite that unless you're a fan of baseball, you've probably never heard of. In today's episode, Arlie and I shift our focus to the heart and soul of the league, the individual players who battle not only on the diamond, but against the ugly realities of their time. In Sugar Ball, Arlie uncovers the personal struggles, triumphs, sacrifices, resiliency, and the indelible mark they left on history. The racist taunts fill the air. Josh Gibson is all focused rage as he faces down Dizzy Dean, the ace right-hander of the white all-stars. A long moment. Everybody's staring at the field. This is it. Dizzy winds up, rears back, and grunts loudly as he fires a fearsome heater on the outside part of the plate. Josh uncoils his upper torso. Crack! It's not a sound other hitters make, even home run hitters. That's horsehide meets hickory. You can hear it in every park and sandlot in America. This sound is like the first crack of thunder during a rainstorm, the one that makes you jump three feet in the air. Ducky Medwick, the All-Stars left fielder, doesn't even run toward the fence. He just turns and watches the ball as it disappears over the fence, still zooming skyward. Then, as one, the fans, all of them, black and white, are on their feet. The black fans are cheering. The white fans are staring, mouths open, Everything they've heard, it's all true. Hey, Rich. Howdy. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm great. Oh, great. Cool. You know, as I always say, I'm so happy to be sitting here with you talking about your book, Sugar Ball. Well, me too. I'm delighted to share the whole process of doing this. And um, anyway, yeah, I, I'm really appreciative of you taking this time and doing this. Yeah, well, we're on episode four here. Um, yeah. And so today I really wanted to ask you a little bit about the players and their experience going to the Dominican Republic. Right. Um, and just that whole process of them sort of beginning to really understand. It's not, it's not until they get there that they really understand the situation <laughs> that they're in. That's true. But, you know, sort of towards the beginning of the book, sort of this key players um, in the book, the heroes of our story, are, are they're approached by a man named Dr. Abar. And initially they're reticent. He's offering them, you know, oodles and boodles of money, cash in a briefcase to go and play in the Dominican Republic um, for what sounds like a bit of a showcase event. Um, yeah, but at first they don't really want to go, but then they finally agree um, right after they'd had this interaction with uh, Clark Griffith, who we talked about in the last episode. Right. Um, and with these large sums of money, it's almost as if they're offering these players a new life. That's true. Yes, uh, um, one of the, the 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 players were used to playing for really, really almost subsistence level money. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a true story. Doctor Ibar, real person, Enrique Ibar, mm. shows up with a suitcase with thirty thousand dollars, which is the equivalent of about six hundred thousand dollars today. Mm-hmm. And says to the players, uh, says to Satchel, look, uh, this is yours. Bring eight other players with you. 
you can pay them anything you want and you get to keep you know whatever you you can you can keep of that mm. so even satchel page who was the highest paid baseball player in in america at that point this is money that he has never seen anything like so they you know they think first of all they think we're finally getting paid what we're worth and this could open up a, a, a world to us that wasn't didn't exist and so they decide to to go to the to the dr mm-hmm. and and have an adventure right at some point i think dr ivor even tells them you win three of the five games that right. they were sort of dare I say, contracted to play. Um, and he tells me you can stay in our country for as long as you want. <laughs> yeah. Well, wh- one of the moments that I think is the most poignant and also something uh, I tried to do this in a way where people could feel the emotions of the players is that when they arrive in the Dominican Republic, they are treated like the gods that they are. Mm. Suddenly they're in a place where everyone is the same color they are, uh, these the Dominican fans, um, the they're they're known as los fanáticos, mm-hmm. you know, which which I think explains itself. <laughs> and they are well versed in who these players were, and they treated them like gods. So suddenly, you can imagine being um, the only similar situation I can think of is that when a lot of jazz uh, players like Charlie Parker or um, uh, John Coltrane went to Europe. Charlie Parker was, you know, addicted to heroin, and he went to Europe and played in Sweden for a couple of months, mm. and he cleaned up. Mm. He got off drugs because he there was no stress in his life. Oh. He wasn't because like, he couldn't find him. No, <laughs> <laughs> he was he was revered by. And in that case, it was white people. But uh, anyway, so they go to the DR, and all of that falls away. You know, suddenly mm-hmm. they're in a completely accepting environment of people who revere them for their skills as baseball players with no rancor or prejudice about their skin color. Yeah. I mean, this is a good segue into my next question because, you know, it's not long before they realize that the the political realities in the Dominican are not so different than they are in America, right? They're sort of this idealized racial purity. Yes. Well, exactly right. Uh, the, you know, uh, once again, this is all true. What happens is they they enter the DR, they're celebrated, they are hosted to a series of parties. Um, they enjoy themselves at these parties, perhaps a little more than they should. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't pay attention to what they're doing on the field. And uh, then the uh, uh, Rafael Trujillo, the the dictator of the Dominican Republic who brought them there uh, lines them up in front of a firing squad and says, I didn't bring you down here to lose. Mm -hmm. At that point, they realize that they're in the middle of something crazy. And what they're in the middle of is uh, Trujillo is in an election. If he doesn't win the election, he loses everything. He's been the dictator in the Dominican since 1930. This is 1937. Mm -hmm. In that time, he's nationalized every single business in the Dominican except for sugar. He was originally put in power by the American sugar growers because they wanted somebody dependable who would never nationalize sugar. You know, they, they basically, the sugar growers said basically, look, we'll kick back a you know, sizable amount of money 
Let us do what we want. Let us pay the workers whatever we want. Let us have our own way, and uh, we'll take care of you. And they were, they were true to the word. They did that. Mm. Only in 1937, Trujillo had become so intoxicated with his own power, he decided to take the ultimate step and uh, nationalize sugar. Mm. Well, the sugar growers, there was a baseball tournament, this tournament that the Negro League players were brought down to play for the Dominican team. The uh, sugar growers got their own team with a bunch of Cuban ringers. Mm -hmm. And baseball was such a big deal in the Dominican. It was so important that if the Dominican national team didn't win the tournament, Trujillo would be so disgraced that he was going to lose this election. Mm. So these players find themselves in a situation where Trujillo makes pretty clear to them that if they don't win the tournament, they're not getting off the island alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he's a guy who can do it. He's, he, was, he studied Hitler pretty carefully. He had his own secret police that was like the Gestapo. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had a system of spies in every neighborhood, so he knew anybody that spoke an ill word about him was taken out and, you know, like put in jail or shot or whatever. Mm. And it was that same kind of uh, horrible, paranoid kind of... Uh, Kind of, kind of environment. Oh yeah, this was a bunch of the game was essentially um, a stab at uh, image washing. Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. And they were they were brought there so Trujillo could say, "I have brought the greatest players in the world to play for this the Dominican national team for the glory of you people that I love." Blah blah blah. You know, yeah, it was very much that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've never understood why certain political leaders spend all this time and money and energy trying to cheat the game instead of just <laughs> doing the things that would cause them to be reelected. But that's true. I digress. That's a good question. <laughs> I have no answer for that question. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, um, you just you touched on the fact that the opposing team was made up of these Cuban ringers. Like, how yeah. much research did you do, not only around Cuban baseball and the culture there, but also in the Dominican? Uh, well... I'd been interested in this subject for quite a while. And, you know, when I was younger, I started to learn about Jackie Robinson. And when you do that, you suddenly learn about Negro League Baseball. And when you do that, you learn that most of the big players um, traveled to Cuba, traveled to other places where baseball was wildly popular, Venezuela, Mexico. Mexico, Baseball is huge in Mexico. And so you learn about this whole kind of world organization of, of baseball. And um, of all those places, the Dominican is the one that was most baseball mad, and it probably still is. I mm. mean, it's like a religion there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so whenever you start looking into a subject like, like race and baseball, you naturally find yourself in all these places like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a rabbit hole for sure. Yeah. And one of the things that um, you sort of that comes up in the story, it's a I think it's a general theme throughout the book, but it's this idea that people are generally good. I mean, oftentimes people get um, sort of looped into the stereotype or the general um, attitude towards the dictator at the time. But is there's a there's a moment in the book where sort of one of the the generals who's leading this group of soldiers, he right. gets, you know, I won't give, I won't, I don't want to give the story <laughs> away. Um, but suffice to say, he goes away 
And the soldiers are so relieved. They're like, oh, thank goodness, you know, you sort of of get the sentiment that they really didn't like this person. They didn't agree with anything that was happening, but they had no choice. That was sort of my, uh, um, you know, research was that not only did these soldiers, uh, there were good people who were kind of like um, uneasy about what they were tasked to do, but they also loved... Josh Gibson, they, they, you know, they generally revered these players and were just horrified by the idea that they were, you know, that they were tasked to um, eliminate them. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a horrible incident going on in the Dominican in 1937 that I kind of tied into the book. It, um, it happened about two months after, and I kind of conflated the two events. But Trujillo... Uh, there were thousands of Haitians who were being brought in by the sugar plantation owners to harvest the sugar cane. And Trujillo, who was had the same kind of racial ideas that Hitler had, uh, since the Haitians had much darker skin than, than the Dominicans, and Trujillo got the idea that they were somehow going to mongrelize the Dominican race, and he ordered his militia to uh, go out and kill these people with machetes. Mm. And it was called the Parsley Massacre. There are several good books on this and uh, a couple of good novels written about it. Uh, so Trujillo killed 17,000 Haitians, mm. men with machetes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a massacre. Mm. And that's the kind of insanity that, that he represented. Mm-hmm. The reason we don't think of him as Hitler is because the American government basically supported him. Wow. You know. Yeah. These untold corners of history. <laughs> yes, yes. It's The more you look into it, the more it's just like, why don't more people know about this? You know, it's just, it's just horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, by the end of the book, we sort of we see these these players essentially running back to America. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. There's there's something happens in the book. This is something I actually uh, this is not uh, this didn't actually happen. But uh, it's the uh, Trujillo basically nationalizes the team and said, "You're now the Dominican national team, and you, yeah. you never get to leave." You know. So then the players have to uh, being a you know since movie since. Uh, since stories are faces, places, and chases, you know, there's a chase at the end of the uh, <laughs> book where they, you know, I don't want to give it away. And there's also, I mean, you just saying that sparked for me, there's this interesting parallel then where, you know, we were saying, we said in the in the last episode, talking about how a lot of these players, they'd win the game, but that didn't mean they would win, they would get the money that they were promised or not <laughs> even maybe half of it, right? Yeah. But in this case, you know, these players are being offered freedom, a second chance at life at the same time that even once they won the game, the, the freedom is the yeah. first thing to go. <laughs> um, so it's a good thing that they, they made their way back. Yeah. And one of the things in the book that's true is that before the final decisive game of this series, uh, Ibar, Dr. Ibar, their sponsor, came into the um, dressing room, players are getting ready for the game, and said, "Um, I strongly advise you to win this game (laughs) because you should know that Trujillo is going to have his militia ringing the field with their rifles, and, uh, you know, I just strongly advise you to win the game. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's all fun and games until the militia gets involved. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, in Satchel Paige's autobiography, he says, um, he says uh, we all knew that if we didn't win the game, we were going to cross over the Jordan River, is the way he put it. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Rich. I mean, I'm really looking forward also um, to our next conversation. We'll be talking a bit more about all of these players, the heroes of this story. Ah, um, yes. So until then... Sugarball Behind the Book is produced and edited by Matthew Solari and hosted by myself, Maya Geis. This episode's version of Take Me Out to the Ball Game was arranged and performed by E. Jammy Jams. You can find Sugarball, a novel of Negro League baseball, everywhere books are available. To learn more about our league, visit richlyspun.com. <laughs>